If you would, grab your Bible and open with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we're going to be on page 864 if you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you. And as you are turning to Luke chapter 8, let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever gotten up the nerve to share the gospel with maybe a friend or a coworker or a family member and you presented the gospel as clearly as you could, as passionately as you could, as faithfully as you could and their response was, eh, indifference or disinterest. And you were so pumped to share the life-changing message of Jesus, and yet they acted as though it just really wasn't a big deal? Or, have you ever had a relative or a friend profess faith in Jesus Christ, and even get excited about their faith, but after a short time, when their preconceived expectations weren't met by God perhaps, or when questions arose that remained unanswered, They turned and walked away from the faith. Or, have you ever watched someone who seemed at once so committed to the cause of Christ, slowly over time, begin to fade away from the Lord and from His church? It's not as though they recanted the faith. It's that other things got in the way, maybe hobbies or sports or pleasures, and before long their faith grew cold and lifeless. My guess is that most of us can think of one or two people in probably all three of those categories. And while we would love to believe that Every time the gospel is presented, every time the word of God is preached and shared, all kinds of people, in fact, we would love to believe that everyone who hears would repent and believe in the gospel and would thereby walk faithfully with the Lord for the rest of their lives. But we know through experience that 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 is simply not the case. And we know from the words of Jesus that that is simply not not the case. So here in Luke chapter 8, Jesus launches into one of his most well-known parables, the parable of the sower. And we're going to spend this week and, Lord willing, next week looking at this important parable. So follow along. I'm going to begin reading Luke chapter 8 in verse 1. The word of the Lord says this, soon afterwards, he, Jesus, went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them Out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering from people, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable A sower went out to sow his seed. 
And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Father God, this is your word. Would you apply it to our hearts? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus' stock is on the rise. Verse 4 tells us that a great crowd was gathering from people, town from town. All of these people kept coming out to hear Jesus and to see Jesus and to be around Jesus' ministry. If they would have had public relations offices in the first century or if they would have had marketing teams in the first century, this would have been exactly what they would have wanted. This was exactly what they had hoped for. Jesus finally is getting the press. He's finally getting the the PR traction that they had longed for and wanted. Now would have been a good time for Jesus to begin making predictions about the fall of Rome or making predictions about the establishment now of his long-awaited kingdom. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus takes this opportunity to tell a story that has a veiled meaning, a story, as we'll see in a moment, which is meant to divide. What's the story that Jesus tells? Well, Jesus tells the story of a farmer, a seed scatterer, who goes out one day to scatter seed. And you could maybe imagine that the people gathered around Jesus as he's teaching certainly knew what it was like, what it looked like for a farmer with a seed bag over his shoulder, seed in both hands, to walk through his fields, scattering seeds liberally on the ground. In fact, it could be that even as Jesus told this parable, there were off in the distance farmers who were scattering seed. We don't know that, but it could be the case. And as he scatters the seed, it falls on four types of soil, four types of ground. The first falls along the path, 
you could imagine maybe a well-worn, well-used path kind of cutting through the middle of the field. The ground is, is packed solid from years of feet. And that seed was immediately eaten by birds, these birds who swooped down and saw this as an easy meal. Other seed landed on the rocky part of the field. This is the place where the, sal- the, the, the soil was shallow. There were lots of rocks. It could be a part of the field where the ground wasn't properly prepared. And this seed immediately sprang up, but because it didn't have much soil, didn't have much ability to develop, to develop roots, it immediately withered as soon as the sun came out. It scorched the seed and it died. Then there was seed that landed, Jesus said, in an area where there were weed and thorn seeds in the ground. And like the seed among the rocks, this seed grew up at first, but so did the thorns. The longer that the seeds grew, the more the thorns also grew up with it, and the more the thorns slowly choked out the good seed, and it failed to mature. But then Jesus tells of a final seed, the fourth seed, that landed on good ground, and it sprouted, and it grew strong, and it produced a harvest. Now this parable isn't primarily about farming, it's not primarily about a sower and about seed, there's a spiritual meaning, there's a, there's a deeper meaning here. But before we get to that, I think it's important for us to stop for a minute and to address exactly what a parable is. What is a parable. This is the first time that we've done this in our series through the book of Luke, and so I think it's important to stop and examine for a minute what exactly is a parable. Well, a parable is a story. A parable is a way of communicating truth through a narrative. And parables are designed to teach a moral or a spiritual lesson. That's the purpose of a parable. Parables primarily have one key idea or one key thought that Jesus is seeking to address in a parable. Um, But there can be lots of kind of extra meanings. There can be lots of supporting meanings to to a parable. So a couple of ditches to avoid when we're looking at parables. The first ditch to avoid is to look at a parable and try to assign meaning to every single detail. It's like the old country western song, probably from the 70s, I think, because it was old when I was a kid, but looking for love in all the wrong places. Lots of people look for meaning in all the wrong places when they come to a parable, and they try to allegorize a parable and try to say, okay, what does that mean, and 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 what does that mean? In fact, that sort of error was common in the second and third centuries of the early church, where so often interpreters and commentators of the Bible would approach the Bible and approach parables as though it was simply an allegory. We try to attach sophisticated meanings to every single detail. And parables don't function like that. Parables have one primary meaning most of the time. But the other ditch that we want to avoid when we look at this parable and other parables is to say, okay, there's one primary meaning, and so we're going to look at that one primary meaning, and we're going to ignore everything else in the parable. And as is the case in this parable, there are several supporting meanings. There are several details in this parable that all support the one primary purpose of the parable. 
So we want to pay attention to both of those things when we look at parables. So parables are meant to teach. They're meant to convey truth. But there's something else that parables are meant to do. Parables are meant to divide. So parables draw out different responses in different people. Some people hear parables, and like the good soil, they immediately hear it, they cling to it, they hold fast to that truth, and they bear fruit. And others hear the parable, and they don't understand. They're like the seed that falls along the path. In fact, Jesus highlights this for us in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant... So they've just heard Jesus teach on this parable of the sower that went out to sow seed in the field. And they ask him, okay, what what do you mean by this? What does this parable mean? And Jesus says to them, before he even gets to what this parable means, he kind of gives an interpretive method for parables. Or an interpretive lens through which we are to understand parables. He said to them, verse 10, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing, they may not see, and hearing, they may not understand. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that parables have a a surface level meaning, And, and almost anyone can see what that surface level meaning is. For example, in this parable, it's not hard to see that seed that falls along a well worn dirt path is not going to take root and germinate and sprout like seed that's fallen on fertile soil. And almost anyone can see that and understand that. But that's the surface level meaning. The purpose, as we said, of parables is to reveal moral or spiritual truth. And for that truth to be revealed, it requires the Holy Spirit to act. We don't come to that knowledge or that truth on our own. The Holy Spirit has to open our eyes and open our hearts to see the deeper truth, to see the spiritual truth, the moral truth in a parable. It's like the Holy Spirit giving us eyeglasses and putting those eyeglasses on us so that we can then truly see what we could only vaguely see or couldn't see at all previously. Or to put all of this another way, the the ESV Study Bible notes says it like this, Jesus' parables hide truth from the crowd while they communicate truth to Jesus' disciples. So if we come back to our question, which is why does Jesus speak in parables, we could say that Jesus speaks in parables because he is illustrating his point. And that's true. Stories are powerful. Stories stick with us. And Jesus uses stories to drive home a moral, ethical, spiritual, eternal reality. But we've seen now that there's another reason Jesus uses parables. There's a dividing reason that Jesus uses parables. Those who truly wanted to follow Jesus, those who truly sought Jesus, those who truly wanted to discern his identity, for them parables were and are a powerful 
blessing. They help bring to life the truth of Jesus' teaching. For all those who seek will find. Those who knock, the door will be opened. But not everyone wanted to understand Jesus or to discern his true identity both then and now. In fact, we are all born into this world blind and dead by sin. We don't naturally on our own desire to know who Jesus is. We don't on our own naturally desire to know the true identity of the Son of God, the way of true salvation, the gospel. We all by nature are like the hard-packed clay of the well-worn path. And it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and to open our eyes so that we can see what's truly there in the parable and to see who Jesus truly is. Otherwise, we simply are like people who hear the parable and dismiss it without actually seeing, without actually understanding the true message. And last week, if you were here, we saw a powerful example of this, a powerful illustration. You remember Simon last week and the the formerly sinful woman who comes to anoint Jesus. And you remember that Jesus, in the midst of that exchange with Simon, he tells Simon the parable or the story of two men who owed money to a banker, a money lender. One owed the equivalent of eighty dollars to $100,000 in today's money. One owed the equivalent of eight dollars to $10,000 in today's money. And then Jesus poses the question to Simon. Okay, if the banker forgave the debt of both, who would love him more? And Simon responds with the obvious answer. Well, the one who had the greater debt forgiven. And Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. Simon was correct, and yet Simon was so wrong because Simon failed to see himself in the story. Simon saw the surface-level meaning of the parable, but he didn't see that he was in the parable. He was one who needed forgiveness, and so he was blind, or to use the words of Jesus, chapter 8, verse 10, he heard, but he did not understand. So once again, because parables are an important part of Jesus' ministry, and we're going to see Jesus use lots of parables in the months and maybe even years ahead, why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, Jesus spoke in parables to illustrate his point. And Jesus spoke in parables to separate those who would hear and believe from those who wouldn't. And there's a mystery in that to us, isn't there? There's a mystery to why Jesus would work that way. There's a mystery that's beyond our human comprehension. We don't quite know how or why God works the way he does. And sometimes we want to exclaim, well, that seems unjust or it seems unfair For you to work that way, God. And it's in those moments we rightly need the words that Paul pens in Romans chapter 9. But who are we to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? 
and one for dishonorable use. And so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And the parables are the real-time, real-life illustration of that. It's the demonstration of that. It brings that to the surface. As some hear the parable and rejoice and celebrate and recognize, yes, that's me, like the woman that we looked at last week, and others hear the parable, and it completely skip, the seed completely skips off the surface. Now, with that kind of as our foundation, not only for this parable, but for all the parables of Jesus, we're going to move now to this particular parable, specifically this interpretation that Jesus gives, beginning in verse 11. And what I want to do for the remaining 20 minutes or so that we have together this morning is to propose that this is a parable both of clarification and a parable of caution. A parable of clarification and a parable of caution. And if that sounds like a lot to get to in 20 minutes, that's okay because we're going to only cover the portion of clarification this morning. And Lord willing, we're going to come back and look at this parable through the lens of caution next week. Now what I mean by parable of clarification is that we are, we're not just to look at this parable and think to ourselves, okay, I need to make sure that I hear the word and I need to make sure that I don't wither when trials come or get choked off by the cares of the world and I need to make sure that I endure faithfully and I need to make sure that I produce fruit. That would be to view this through the lens of a parable of caution and that's perfectly legitimate. Jesus says in verse 8, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is meant to be a warning. But I'm going to submit to you that it's not only meant to be a warning. It's also meant to clarify the reality that exists every single day. It's meant to clarify, to enlighten us to why we can share and share and share and share the gospel. And some are hard-hearted and it seems like nothing ever happens And why others seem to believe and are excited for a short time and then immediately they vanish and they're gone. And why others seem to believe and walk faithfully with the Lord, it seems, from the outside. And yet over time, their love for Christ grows cold and dim and dead. And why others, sometimes, as we will see, the least likely hear the gospel and recognize their need and celebrate and rejoice in the provision of Jesus Christ and hold on to that truth with patient endurance and bear fruit. So this parable is meant to clarify, it's meant to show us, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a key on a map. We look at it and we say, okay, here's all kinds of stuff going on. How do we make sense of it? And this is the key that helps us to make sense of what happens all around us all the time. First, some will hear the word and remain unresponsive. That's pretty clear from verse 12. Those along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And lest we think, well, that's unfair that they were not able to 
to receive and believe and be saved. We need to remember that our natural disposition without the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is already to not want to see and believe. We naturally love the darkness and hate the light. So these are individuals who I would submit to you are being given over to their natural desires, the thing that they really want anyway. And this is once again a picture of Simon from last week. I mean, Simon had the Son of God in the flesh standing there, and he heard the story of forgiven debtors, and yet we have no indication that that seed penetrated his hard heart, and he realized, I need forgiveness just as this woman needs forgiveness. And evangelism is like that, isn't it? Sometimes we share the gospel over and over, and yet it seems as though our family member or our friends, they just aren't interested. They don't want it. They're just, oh, that's nice, or that's good for you. We think if we can just use different words, if we can just get the, the ingredients different, or if it's just kind of get all the tumblers to align, it all of a sudden will just will automatically open the door of their hard heart, and they will receive, and they will celebrate the, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't work that way. And this is what is happening. The seed is falling on hard ground. Then, secondly, there are those who hear the word, respond emotionally and quickly, but tragically they will not last. Look at verse 13. And the ones on the rock are the ones who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. They're the ones that get really excited really quick, and that's a great thing. It's not, the problem isn't that they received it with joy. The problem was they had no root system, and they endured for a little while, but because they had no root, in time of testing, they fall away. Or Matthew's record of this same account of Jesus' parable adds these words, from Jesus, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They heard the gospel message, there was an emotional response, there was an immediate response with joy, but it didn't last. They professed Christ, they seemed to believe for a short time. They were members of a good church for a short time. They seemed to check all the right boxes. Perhaps in their own mind, they are convinced for a short time. But then the undealt with questions of maybe a professor, or the ridicule of former friends, or the unexpected loss of a job or freedoms for the sake of Christ, leave them without roots to weather the storm. They are not like... The wise man in Psalm 1 who delighted himself in the law of the Lord and therefore was like a tree planted by streams of water, drawing nourishment through the root system up into the tree and who prospered even in times of drought. They are not like that. They dry up and they die. They don't persevere in the faith. Their faith seemed legitimate. Their testimony seemed convincing. But they don't last. 
they're not willing to dig in and answer the hard questions. They're not ready for the trials that come when we stand with Christ. Maybe they expected the Christian life to be easier, to make things easier in the here and now, and not harder in the here and now. Or maybe they weren't prepared just for the hardships and difficulties that come with going against the grain of a fallen world. And one way or another, the reality of life with Christ didn't meet their expectations of what Christianity would bring. A third clarification is in verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. All three of these first soils are heartbreaking. I don't know why. Somehow for me, this is especially heartbreaking. This third kind of soil. It's the, sto- it's the story of those who hear the word and receive the word, it would seem. And it would seem they begin to grow. And when we watch, we get excited for new life. We get excited because there seems to be transformation. But over time, something happens. Over time, the weeds begin to grow up with them. And Jesus said, the weeds are the cares of riches. It's the long hours that must be worked to acquire more and more stuff. It's the life complexity that happens so often if we're not careful when we acquire more things. And Jesus said that the weeds represent the pleasures of life. The pleasures of life. Things like vacations and kids' sports and love of entertainment and Hulu, right? All good things. All good things. But dangerous things and sinful things when they become, as Paul David Tripp says, ruling things. These are men and women who were once active in their prayer life and active in studying the word and active in desiring Jesus and active in the life of the local church. But over time, that begins to wane. Over time, you don't see them as much at church. Over time, they're not as regular in the word and in prayer and desiring the things of Christ and loving Jesus because over time their life has gradually become more and more consumed with a hobby or little league or soccer or dance recitals. They finally bought the dream boat or the lake house and so more and more time is spent in those endeavors than time fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, more time fellowshipping with the church. It could be hobbies, it could be hours of TV or love of travel means less time worshiping and growing and serving in the local church community, gathering with sisters and brothers in Christ, less time making disciples, less time evangelizing the lost, less time serving the community. And slowly, almost imperceptibly, they're choked off. Their love of Christ grows dim, not by bad things, but by good things that are misplaced on the priority chart. Like Martha in Luke chapter 10, they can be 
worried and concerned by many things when only one thing is needed. The final soil clarified for us here is in verse 15. It's the faithful life. Verse 15 says, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. They are the ones who hear the word. They are the ones who hold fast to the word. They are the ones who endure faithfully. And they are the ones who bear fruit with patience. It's interesting the words that Jesus uses here. They hear, they hold fast, they hold on, they bear fruit with patience. Right? This is a picture of tortoise Christians, not necessarily hare Christians. Right? They're the ones who faithfully and patiently endure. They are not necessarily the ones that may seem immediately impressive or the ones who start off with a bang or the ones who when we meet them, we immediately want to plug them in. You should serve here and you should be involved here. Isn't it exciting? And can, we, can I introduce you to this person? But they are the ones who faithfully endure. They are the ones who have a track record for patient endurance in good times and in bad. And while a qualification for being an elder is to not be a recent convert, this call for patient endurance is a call to all Christians. This is a parable then of clarification. It clarifies what happens when the seed of the word meets the soil of people's heart. But I think, given the, the way Luke places this parable in the narrative, in his letter, in his book, I think we are also meant to see just how unexpected things can be when the seed of the word meets the soil of people's hearts. I'll just look, for example, again, as I said, where Luke places this narrative. So back in chapter 7, you can flip there if you want. We're not going to read, but you can scan your eyes through the text. In chapter 7, verse 18 and following, we see John the Baptist. John the Baptist questioning Jesus' identity. This is one who should have truly known who Jesus is, and yet it seems, perhaps, he may have been having some doubts. And then in chapter 7, verse 31 and following, Jesus rebukes the people, especially the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the religiously trained professionals. Jesus rebukes them for not recognizing his true identity as the Messiah. And then the same theme continues into verse 36. What we looked at last week, where Simon, this Pharisee, hears the message of Jesus. The seed is thrown out, but his heart is hard. And he fails to understand who Jesus is and fails to understand what Jesus is calling him to. And at the very same time, this beautiful daughter of Abraham, made in the image of God, a sinner, yes, understands This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. I need this salvation. And she lavishly worships him by faith. And now Luke continues into chapter 8 telling us about some of the people who not just 
followed Jesus, but were integral, who were a core part of Jesus' ministry while on earth. Look at verse 1. Soon afterwards, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what we would expect, because that's what Jesus has been doing up to now. And the twelve were with him. Again, what we would expect, because they've been with him up until now. Verse 2, and also some women. Okay, that's a bit unique, especially in the first century culture where women were not often given the status that they deserved as image bearers of God. But not just any women. Luke is detailed for us here. Remember, this is where it's important to know that all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it's important. And Luke is precise. Luke is, Luke's not playing fast and loose with his narrative, but he's careful. He's diligent. And so he's giving us details about these women because these details are important. Some women who had been healed, verse 2, of evil spirits and infirmities. And he gives us an example of a couple of the women specifically who are following Jesus. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So Mary, this woman who was demon-possessed, possessed, 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 had demons cast out of her and was a follower of Jesus. Could you imagine the kind of life that she would have lived before these demons were cast out of her? As an outcast, as a pariah of society, unwanted anywhere she would have gone, and yet in Jesus she finds a home. In Jesus she finds one who loves her, who forgives her, and she follows and now she's part of the entourage. You can imagine the, you know, the Jerusalem Times reporting on this. Like, Jesus is kind of traveling with this motley crew. I mean, he's got Mary. You remember Mary? She was the one going around and, you know, who knows, frothing at the mouth or whatever. Like, demon-possessed? Like, overpowering maybe soldiers? Like, who knows how these demons impacted her? And yet, she's transformed, and she's now following Jesus, which shouldn't surprise us especially given the text that we looked at last week. But not only Mary, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And so we have, we have the wife of Herod's chief of staff, right? Wicked King Herod. The wife of his chief of staff, a woman likely of great means, great influence, a woman who is in the upper crust of society, also is trusting in Jesus, is also following Jesus. You see, it's not limited just to the least, the last, and the lost. It's also, the gospel is also open. The gospel is also coming. Those who are having receptive hearts are those in all sorts of strata of society and backgrounds. Those that we would think they would never be interested. I mean, her husband is the chief of staff for wicked King Herod. And yet, the Lord saves her. And they're not just following, but notice at the end of verse 3, there are many others as well who provided for them out of their means. You want to know how Jesus had food to eat as he traveled and ministered for three years? 
you want to know how he had fresh sandals to wear, fresh clothes from time to time, likely. It was because God the Father chose to provide for his son's needs through these faithful women. Who it would seem through the eyes of the flesh least likely. Yet these women who supported the very work of Jesus as he traveled and ministered. Supported the work of the disciples, the apostles, as they travel and as they minister. How significant is that? And I think, once again, Luke is trying to show us that those who hear and respond to Jesus' preaching are not those that we would expect to respond well. Like tax collectors and sinners are humbling themselves at the feet of Jesus. Women who have had seven demons cast out of them. Women who are ingrained in the political, wicked political system of the day are the very ones who hear the seed and receive it and hold fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And at the same time, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who would seem so likely, those who had been voted most likely to receive the gospel in their high school yearbook, are the ones sitting there with stony hearts, rejecting Jesus and the seed of his word. And this is a parable of clarification because we should expect the same. We should expect the same today. We should expect the least likely to be saved. And everyone essentially is the least likely because we have no idea who the Lord will save and how he will save them and when he will save them. Which brings us to two takeaways as I close. Two takeaways from this text this morning. First, we should be prepared. We should be prepared. We should be prepared that as we share the gospel, as we teach and preach and open the word of God with men and women, we should be prepared that some of them will say, oh, that's nice, I'm not interested. We should be prepared for that, lest that somehow shipwreck our faith, or lest that should somehow cause us to try to manipulate the gospel or to manipulate the word of God to think, well, it must be me. The reason they're not receiving this is me. And so if I just change the message a little bit, if I just do this differently, then they'll receive it and they'll embrace it. And a parable like this helps clarify for us that there will be those who simply, unfortunately, tragically will not receive. And there will be those who seem to start so well and we see that and we, we, we're excited about that and yet immediately they vanish. They have no root system. And we should expect that there will be those who tragically will begin to show promise and will begin to be curious and will begin to show evidence perhaps even of faith. And yet over time their love for Christ will begin to grow cold. Lest when we see all of this we somehow think that the gospel is ineffective or we think that what what we're believing in and trusting in isn't really sufficient to save. The second takeaway is that we should, 
spread the seed of the word of God. And we should spread it liberally and we should spread it far and wide because we have no idea how the Holy Spirit will use the word of God. We have no idea how the Holy Spirit will use the gospel message as we speak it and share it across you know, the fence in the backyard or across a coffee at Starbucks or with someone in the locker room after the sporting event. Like We have no idea how God will use the seed of the word of God as it goes out. And therefore, we should be all the more bold because we know some will reject and some will receive, but the means by which people will hear the gospel and be saved is through the gospel being presented. Will everyone receive it? No. But we have no idea. It could be perhaps that the least likely, the notorious sinner in your life will be the one who hears and the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of their heart. And the seed sinks into the soil and they bear fruit. We have no idea. And so we should proclaim the gospel widely and broadly and readily. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.